Go ahead and open your Bibles if you have them to Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. We're actually going to be in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 37 this morning, but I'm going to begin in verse 20 to show you the connection between what Jesus says there and what he says in our main text. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, let me pray for our time this morning as we continue our series in the Sermon on the Mount, and then after I do that, before we actually get into the text, this will be frightening to some of you, but I'm actually going to tell you four things, and I'm going to try to do it quickly. They're very important, but actually, I don't do this very often, but four very important things before we get into the main text. Let me pray for our time together. Heavenly Father, please help me now. I feel, I feel weak. I feel tired. I feel desperate for you to speak. At the same time, I feel helped by the prayers of, of so many here, and I feel, I feel helped by the supply of your spirit. I, I thank you for the privilege of, of bringing your words to your people. And Lord, I, I just trust that your spirit will make true what you say in your word, that your word never goes out without coming back to you, accomplishing the purpose for which you sent it out. It never comes back void. We ask for that again this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Four very quick and important things. First of all, each week, each week when we gather like this here at Holton Elementary School, we read some part of the Bible together. And then we learn a little bit more about God and His will for our lives. And as we do that, all of us, including those of us who stand up here, we discover that we have moments where God shows us that there is indeed a gap between what His revealed will for our lives is from the Scriptures and the lives that you and I have actually lived. We notice that gap and we feel it at times. As a result, we find ourselves in need of God's forgiveness. And as the gospel is proclaimed, we learn to trust that we have that forgiveness because of what Jesus has done for us in His life, death, and resurrection. And the same is going to be true today. As Jesus continues to show us what various portions of God's law mean for our lives, that same thing is going to happen. We're going to need God's grace. The second thing that I want to say is that today, Jesus is actually going to address some very sensitive subjects for us. The subjects of adultery, divorce, remarriage, and as a church, We we represent a broad range of experiences when it comes to those things. It's probably fair to say that all of us have been impacted by them to one degree or another. But it would also be fair to say that for some of us, these subjects might be particularly sensitive this morning, even very painful. One of our members helped me a great deal with this as as I talked with them this, uh, this past week, and, and we, we, don't, we don't have like open mics or anything normally here at Redemption Hill Church, but, but consider this a moment of another member of ours that you don't see right now prophesying and a, a word of encouragement to some of us. Here's what that member had to say. Some of us need to hear this morning that Jesus understands what it is to be betrayed by someone he loved. He understands what it is to be abandoned by those closest to him. He understands broken hearts. He understands broken relationships. He understands suffering and feeling forsaken. And precisely because He has suffered with us, the Bible says that He is able to help us in Hebrews chapter 2. Because of Jesus, 
None of our wounds is incurable. Our wounds can be healed. And on the other side of that, because of Jesus, all of our sins can be forgiven. Please remember that as you listen today as Jesus goes through the law of God and what it actually means. The third thing I want to say is this. It'll be tempting for some of us here this morning to justify ourselves as we listen to Jesus, the same way people have always tried to justify themselves when they listen to Jesus. We'll be saying in our hearts, perhaps, I have not committed adultery. And because of that temptation, we need to remember what James says in James chapter 2, verses 10 through 11. Now that will come up for you in just a little bit on the screen, but here's what it says. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, so the issue here is the one who speaks, he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. So if you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So as far as it concerns his law, God has one classification for every single one of us in the room this morning, and that is that of transgressor. There's no special category or saint, of saint or sinner before God's law, before Jesus' cross, um, and each one of us is disqualified from entering the kingdom of heaven on the basis of our own moral record. There's really no sense in boasting about what we think did not disqualify us in particular. We're all on level ground. Can you say Amen. The last thing I want to say is this. As we listen to Jesus this morning, it's only natural that questions will arise about a particular situation, whether our own or somebody else's. We just want to say up front that we as pastors understand that we won't be able to address all of those questions in a 30-minute sermon or 40-minute sermon like this morning. Nor again do we expect that you'll be able to address adequately all of those questions in one sitting with your communities or your community leaders. And so, with all of that considered, what we want to do is say that we would love to help you think through those questions in a setting that will give us the best opportunity to learn from you the details of the particular situation you have in mind and to help you gain some clarity concerning God's will as we understand it currently from the Bible. So if you would like to speak further with one of the pastors about a situation like that, there are two ways that you can do that. The two best ways this morning are to take that little connection card that Chris DeRocco just mentioned and actually notify us that you'd like to speak with us on that connection card and drop it in one of those silver boxes around the room. And then the other way that you can do that is, and I know this sounds terribly informal and I I don't like doing it that way, but it really is the best way we know how right now, other than you trying to come up and grab one of us when we're chasing our three or five kids, depending on which pastor you're talking about. But the other way way that you can can let us know of your your desire to talk to us is to contact us at info at redemptionhill.org. Okay, so all of that being said, those are my four things. We're, We're about to come to the text. Let's go ahead and pray one more time, and then we'll actually see how Jesus takes us through examples number two, three, and four of the righteousness that God requires of those who would enter the kingdom of heaven. Heavenly Father, one more time we come before you and we ask that now Jesus would speak, that he would speak clearly, that you would remove anything that would hinder us from hearing him, and that you would remove anything that would keep us from truly believing in our hearts that obedience to the word of Christ is the path to joy. We ask that in your name, Jesus, amen. 
This is Jesus now, verse 20, Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And he begins to contrast that now in verses 27 through 37, what those two righteousness is look like. Verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, then cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Now the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord stands forever. We won't spend too much time in verses 33 through 37, but I'm going to begin there and just quickly let Jesus summarize for us what he says by looking at verse 37 one more time. Jesus says there at the end, let what you say be simply yes or no. In other words, just keep your word. Say what you mean, mean what you say, and then carry out what you have spoken. There's no need to swear by anything. You have very little control over those things anyway, and it adds absolutely nothing of value to your promise. And all such swearing, Jesus tells us, comes from evil. Now, of course... There's a lot more that could be said about that section, but in the interest of time, let's go now to verses 27 through 32, and let's see where Jesus applies this standard of keeping our word to the covenant of marriage. Now, the people, the people who were listening to Jesus back then had two big misconceptions about adultery in particular. Number one, they thought that it was only physical in nature. And number two, they thought that it was automatically avoided through, div through divorce and remarriage. But that isn't what Jesus teaches us here at all. And so I, I want you to listen to Jesus again and let's, let's go back through this together. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So adultery is not merely physical in nature. It can take place in the heart even without the other person's knowledge. But what exactly constitutes this adultery of the heart as Jesus speaks about it here? Well, when Jesus speaks about that here, notice he's not speaking about the very natural situation where you notice an attractive quality in somebody else. Rather, he is talking about the intentional stare 
that indulges a sinful desire. Notice Jesus doesn't say everyone who looks at a woman, period. He says everyone who looks at a woman with a certain kind of sinful intent. So let me, let me ask you this. Why are you looking? Again, what's going on in your heart that no one else but God can see as you look? That's what Jesus is talking about here. And, and let me just say this, because again, again, I know what you're feeling. Some of you are thinking, wow, if this is the standard, this is crushing. I fall so far beneath this. That's what God's law does to people who understand what's really going on in their hearts. And, and let me say this up front before I go on and I actually tell you. Uh, well, let me remind you, first of all, that coming to something like this and hearing Jesus speak is not primarily about trying to make ourselves feel better about the way that we've lived. You, you, you'll find that very, very, very often when, when God opens up the Bible and opens up his law and explains to us what life should be, it, it doesn't really serve the main purpose of validating our lifestyle or experiences. You'll, you'll discover that. All right, so don't be shocked. You're, you're, you have plenty of company in the room this morning, starting here, and you've got many, many more uh, friends out there, all right? So let me, let me just kind of go through and, and explain how the law of God works very quickly. A, a lot of people misunderstand this. They put law and grace in opposition to each other. But if you take even the Ten Commandments, and Jesus is expounding the Seventh Commandment here, even the Ten Commandments come to us in the context of grace. Did you know that? If I ask people to tell me, what are the Ten Commandments, they very quickly jump to the prohibitions. You shall have no other gods before me is number one. But in Exodus chapter 20, it doesn't begin that way. God comes and he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, actually begins with a word of grace. I am your God. This is my relationship with you. Then it speaks about redemption. I have rescued you out of the bondage that you were in in Egypt. Then the rules come. Do you see that? So all of God's rules come to us in the context of grace. As a matter of fact, God has never revealed him, his law to any human being who had not already broken it. Some of you don't believe me. Moses was the first one to get it. He had a private session. God gave him the law. And by the time he got to the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, what's Moses thinking? You know his story. Then Moses brings it down to the people, and they're, they're, they're breaking number one, aren't they? And Moses misunderstands, and he throws it down and says, this is no good. They're already breaking it. Well, well no, it's still good, Moses. You had broken it before I gave it to you, too. Hey, we've all broken God's law. His, his law is coming to us this morning with a purpose, to reveal to us who we are, and then it's in the context of grace as he reveals Christ to us, we're all going to see how Jesus helps us in ways that we can't help ourselves. Is that okay? Can anybody say amen? amen. It, it's all over, by the way, in the Bible. Law comes in the context of grace. Don't have time to go through the rest of it, although I'd like to. We'll make that a class at the dinner series one of these years. Let me find my place in my notes. All right, here's what I wanted to say to you. That look, that second look, with sinful intent, I've discovered in my own life, that thing never wants to be just a second glance. When it grows up, if you could ask it what it wants to be when it grows up, 
and it could speak, it would tell you, I want to destroy your life and the lives of everybody around you. And we've actually seen this happen, the destruction that is caused by these things. Look, that, that thought of comparison in your mind, you know, you know the one where you say, I wish my husband were, were more like so-and-so's husband? Never wants to be just discontentment. Discontentment always wants to be divorced, and fantasizing is never happy to remain where it is. It always seeks a promotion to reality. I'm warning us. Jesus is warning us because this is the way things work. And, and in fact, that's why Jesus says that we need to treat sin even when it appears most harmless, like the dangerous enemy that it really is. You can see that in verses 29 through 30. He's, he's not advocating self-mutilation here. He's simply employing extreme language to make the following point. You need to know the things that tempt you. Notice he says, if your right eye causes you to sin. If it, it may not cause somebody else to sin, but if it causes you to sin, you need to know that. Right? You need to know the things that tempt you, and you need to take whatever action is necessary to put some permanent distance between you and those things. No matter how painful or costly it may seem at the time, it is better for us to be permanently separated from anything, and I say with some qualification, perhaps anyone that causes us to sin. I don't want anyone running away from his or her spouse. That's why I say with some qualification, all right? Now, and I know this is, a, this is a behavioral modification way to deal with sin. I'm not, I'm not saying that this will fix the problem entirely because the real cause and root of sin is found in our hearts. And you can't, you can't get rid of that by your own means. No, that's why God was going to take drastic measures as well. Because he, in dealing with the source of our sin or the sin that we, we have inside us right at its source, God was going to take the extreme measure of, of actually cutting off his son on the cross because only that was going to be able to fix us. And that's what he's done for us. So again, hear the gospel throughout all this mentioning of the law because I'm going to continue to allow Jesus to expound the law for us. And there are times where it's going to feel absolutely crushing. Now, as we come to verses 31 and 32, what we see Jesus dealing with here is not the kind of separation he just spoke about in verses 29 and 30, but a different kind of permanent separation. And many of the people listening to Jesus were under the impression that as long as they went through the appropriate legal channels, listen, listen to me, we're a very litigious society. As long as they went through the appropriate legal channels and obtained a certificate of divorce, then their marriage was officially annulled in the sight of God and they were then free to remarry somebody else. However, and I'm, I'm wording this very carefully, I, I can't even tell you guys how long I stayed up to make sure that all of these words, but, but Jesus teaches here in chapter 5, verse 32. We'll see it for ourselves in just a moment that under certain circumstances, divorce and remarriage can lead to adultery. A kind of adultery that most people don't count. I'll say it again, under certain circumstances, divorce and remarriage can lead to adultery. Now let's all see Jesus teaching that in verse 32. And by the way, when you hear me say immorality from this point on, I'm speaking about the specific kind of immorality that we have in our text. 
All right, first of all, what is the particular situation here that Jesus is considering in verse 32? He's considering a case where a husband has divorced his wife on grounds other than immorality. And before we look at exactly what Jesus does say here, it's very important to notice what he does not say. If we go strictly on what Jesus says here in this text, he does not say that he either condemns or condones a divorce that is sought on the grounds of immorality. He simply comments on divorces which are sought on other grounds. Look. And you'll see it. I'm making no further statement at this time, but in this text, Jesus neither condemns nor condones a divorce which is sought on the grounds of immorality. He simply comments on divorces which are sought on other grounds. And that's important to note. So now, now that we see what he is not saying, what is he saying? Well, first he says this, I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, and so right away, let me remind us, this is not me speaking, this is Jesus. Everyone who, I say to you, he says. And then he says, everyone who divorces his wife, and so right away we can also say that this applies universally to everyone who divorces his wife in this way. And he says, everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of immorality, makes her commit adultery. And the assumption here, obviously, is that she has remarried. Now, let's take an even closer look at this verse, and you'll notice some other things. Jesus is saying a number of very important things here. Number one, God obviously disapproves of this divorce. That should be obvious. Number two, the original husband in this scenario is the one chiefly responsible for the adultery which is said to occur here. Notice it is the one who divorces her who makes her commit adultery. Do you see that? And interestingly, if you look at some of the parallel passages, everywhere in the Bible where this this issue is brought up and Jesus is making this statement, the guilty party, the one that you and I would identify as the guilty party, is said to be committing adultery in the present continuous progressive sort of sense and it's always listed there in the active voice. If you know anything about grammar, that that will mean something to you. So that person is actually doing the action. Here, the divorced woman is actually being spoken of in, in the passive voice, that this is something primarily being done to her. All right, that's a very important thing. All right, I won't go too much into that because I'll get stuck. That means it just there's, there's lots you can do, and again, we'll, I'll list before I end today. Some, some very relevant passages that will assist you in your personal study about all of these things. But number two, the, the husband in this case, the original husband is chiefly responsible for the, for the adultery which is said to occur here. But that leaves us with number three, and this is the most troubling part of it. And I freely confess, um, I, I, I tried my best to make this passage say something else this week. I'm not just saying that. Uh, my, my <laughs> I 
Num number three. The divorced wife, Jesus says, um, commits adultery here. And again, the assumption is if she remarries. <clears throat> so while, while the husband is cited, as the one uh, chiefly responsible here, Jesus does say that nonetheless, adultery is committed. Um, and again, the, the assumption is that she has remarried. Now, if you're, if you're like me, you're thinking, that can't be right. That can't be right. Um, this violates everything that you and I uh, consider to be just. I told you I tried my best to make this sound different. Um, and, and I freely admit that even as I stand here right now, I don't feel good about this at all. Usually as a pastor, I stand up here and I speak I get to remind other people that we, we, um, we, cannot allow, we cannot allow our feelings to determine what we believe. There's a distinction between what we feel and what we believe. And we can't allow our feelings to determine what we believe. So this week it was my turn. I had to tell myself that I couldn't allow my feelings about what I thought was right to be the foundation of what I believed to be true. I needed to surrender to God's word and to trust that Jesus actually understands justice and reality better than, than I do. And what he's doing is describing reality here. So having accepted what Jesus says here, the question now becomes why? Why is the divorced wife in this case said to be committing adultery when she remarries? Why is the new husband said to be committing adultery when he marries her? This is never going to make sense unless you and I have some glimpse of what Jesus has in mind when he speaks about marriage. We can't just talk about adultery or divorce or anything. It doesn't, none of it makes sense unless you see what Jesus says about marriage. Heaven has the highest imaginable view and purpose of and for marriage. Our culture and, and quite often our, our, our own lives make such a mockery of what marriage is. And, and you, will, you will discover that heaven's standards and heaven's view of marriage has always remained the same from the very beginning. That's what Jesus teaches us. I want you to go with me to Matthew chapter 19. Just a couple chapters over. Really, 14 of them, but who's counting? 
And we're going to see Jesus talking about marriage here. And what I'm going to say to you is I think what Jesus says about marriage here is what helps us to make sense of everything else that we've heard this morning. I'm just going to let Jesus speak as we read this. Verse 1, now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and he entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, have you not read Scripture? is what determines what is right concerning all these things. We do not seek an answer today from our current culture and from our contemporaries. Is it right to do this? Jesus says, have you not read? That He who created them from the beginning. You, you cannot understand marriage rightly unless you go back to creation. There are so many things about the way our culture views marriage today that are absolutely wrong, and I say that without apology. Because their understanding of marriage is that it is a human construct and that we are free to change it as we see fit whenever we change our ideas. Not so for the Bible-believing Christian. Have you not read, Christian, that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, so it is He who created them who said. By the way, sidebar, this is one of the most important statements from Jesus about the authority and inspiration of the entire Scripture. Because what he's about to do is quote Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, written by Moses, spoken by Adam, and Jesus says that the Creator says it. Did you catch that? The Creator is speaking in that poem. The Creator is speaking through what Moses wrote. Every, every word in your Bible is from God's mouth. Every last one. Have you not read that he who created them made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And then he draws a conclusion. Jesus draws a conclusion based on what God says about marriage. And what he says next is absolutely true every single day, everywhere in the world, at every time human beings live. Its origins are in the very creative act of God. They, so, because of what God said, they are no longer two, but one flesh. And the other conclusion he draws is this. 
since all of that is true, they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore, everybody say next, God has joined together. Let not man separate. As a general principle, Jesus absolutely forbids divorce. On the grounds that marriage, the covenant of marriage, is God's work, not man's. He does not say what therefore husband and wife have joined together. The Bible says what therefore God has joined together. That is the ground upon which man is not permitted to separate the marriage covenant. My daughters play with Legos. I, I hate to come down so far from the high view of marriage to, to plastic toys in my living room, but you'll see the connection. Kira likes to build towers out of Legos, and now it's gone to whole houses and playgrounds and everything else. Julia, Kira's five, by the way, Julia is one in three months or something like that. She likes to take down what Kira has built. Kira has a rule. What Kira has put together, let not Julia separate. <laughs> I hope you see the connection. Human beings who enter into a covenant marriage have entered into something bigger than themselves. We, when we toy around with marriage as if it is created and designed for our own personal happiness and what we think will achieve that, we make a huge mistake. It is for the display of God's glory by telling the truth and making visible the otherwise invisible relationship between Jesus Christ and His church. It is not for those who have reduced its purpose down to what makes them happy. That's not what marriage is about. You have plenty of other options available to you. Marriage, by God's design, is something entirely different. They are no longer two but one flesh. The way I, the way I say this at people's weddings, some, at some people's weddings, the way I say this, is we often think about the one flesh union as referring simply to the act of marriage. But what, what I'd like to encourage you to think about is, is a, another example of that. You know, when, when Kira was born, I think this truth came home to me a lot, a lot more pointedly. Uh, when I look at my daughter Kira, the invisible reality of what God has done between me and my wife Heather is made visible. She is one flesh. I cannot take the Raymond part from the Heather part in my daughter. And in a very real, real sense, what you discover is God sees married couples the way that we see our daughter, as one indivisible life. The two have become one. In a very real sense, that means then that the bond of marriage by which God joins people together is of such a nature and such a power that it makes one new life out of the two formerly separate lives which comprise it. 
He doesn't join people together like puzzle pieces that can be easily put together and then easily taken apart again to, with little or no damage done to either piece. This is, this is more like, I, I tell people, molecules of hydrogen and oxygen, that when you bring them together in certain proportions or certain ways by certain bonds, it creates something entirely different in the process. The two, two, have become one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. That is the general principle that Jesus lays down before us as it concerns the bond of marriage and the covenant of marriage. And you might say then, well, what about the exception if we keep reading in Matthew chapter 19? Let's do that. Let's go to verse 7. After Jesus said this, they said to him, then why did... Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away. That's a reference, by the way, to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. What you'll actually discover when you read that for yourself, and I trust you will, Moses actually didn't command anything. He simply acknowledged what was going on, and, uh, and he allowed certain things. But you, you watch what Jesus says here. You can call it a commandment. It's, it's referred to it that way in, in another part of the Bible, but... It wasn't really Moses commanding something as much as he was acknowledging what was going on and telling people how to live in light of that. Verse 4, or rather, I'm sorry, verse, verse 8, Jesus said to them, It was because of the hardness of your hearts that Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But, watch this again, from the beginning, notice where he goes, from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, now here comes the exception clause, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality. Now, that's the same exception clause that we saw back in chapter 5. Here, though, it sounds like... Now, I'm not making any official statements here. Let me say that. It sounds like here in Matthew chapter 19, there is greater potential to hear the exception clause as something which provides or provides for what, what we would normally call legitimate grounds for divorce, right? Because he says here in, in Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another commits adultery. And so I can definitely see how someone would read that and say, if you consider the exception, then it would lead you to say whoever divorces his wife on the grounds of immorality and marries another perhaps does not commit adultery. Do you see that? And so now we, we go back and we try to rethink, well, what about that divorced woman from chapter 5? And I don't mind telling you guys this morning, I, I'm still thinking through all of this. I really am. I, I've studied this for years. I'm studying it again now, and I'm still thinking through a lot of this. And, and um, I, I, I'll, I'll show you all of the passages that I'm looking at. And, and I'll, I'll come back later in this message and I'll tell you what we can definitely rest on. Uh, but notice here, Jesus is saying there is some kind of exception clause in here. And, but what we do know is this, if, before we jump to conclusions about what it means, you want to look at verse 10. Verse 10 is very helpful in terms of understanding what Jesus must have meant by whatever he said in that exception clause. Because... He says, or they respond to Jesus, those listening to him that day, and they say, wait a minute, if this, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. 
What I can tell you for sure, 100% sure, is that those who heard Jesus teaching about marriage the way that you're hearing me teach right now, they ended up in verse 10. I don't see how that could lead to the conclusion that Jesus made it sound easy to enter into a covenant of marriage and just kind of get out for whatever reason. I mean, to the point where guys, men, say this is probably better than just not to get married. Whatever Jesus said presented the highest possible view of marriage. It would be better not to marry. And Jesus goes on to say some other things, and, and we, won't, we won't go there this morning. But I think we can see here that God takes marriage very seriously. I hope you would agree, whatever else we might have questions about, God takes marriage much more seriously than we do, and certainly than our culture at large does. And at this point, you're probably wondering, well, what, what does all of this mean for real people like us today, who have made mistakes, who have sinned? who are unsure about what we've done and how we should classify it, what does it mean? Let me, let me take the case of, let, let's say, um, what if you've already remarried? You've divorced. We don't know the particular details of the situation, but you've divorced. You're, you're married again to somebody else. And often people ask the question, does this mean that I should... I should divorce my current spouse and try to go back to whatever my original covenant of marriage was. Let me, let me just give you the words of one pastor. I won't name him, but I, I like the way this pastor said it. There are marriages in my church among believers that are second or third marriages for one or both partners that today are godly marriages. Marriages that are clean and holy, and in which forgiven, justified husbands and wives please God by the way they relate to each other. As forgiven, cleansed, spirit-led followers of Jesus, they are not committing adultery in their marriages. And this, according to this pastor, his view was their marriage actually did begin, however, as an act of adultery. A forgivable, Done, completed act of adultery. One more Greek lesson for you. Whenever you, whenever you see these things spoken of in the Bible, uh, there, there are different ways to use verbs. And there are different tenses of verbs. For instance, there's a way to speak about the past in the Greek language that makes the verb sound like it's, it's still going on. And then there's another way to speak about it, a tense called the aorist tense that refers to a completed and non-progressive type of action. When it speaks about adultery this way and how it's applied to a second or third marriage, it speaks of it in the aorist tense. It's, it's completed, it's done, it's covered by, by Jesus' blood. Now, we never, we never use that knowledge. We don't say because grace abounds where sin was that we, we go into that before we're in that situation. We don't, we don't do that, right? But this is what 
what we see in the Bible, that there are, there are second, third marriages for one or both that are godly marriages in the sight of God, covered by Christ, whatever the particular history of those relationships has been. And you might say, well, what about those who have been divorced and desire to be remarried in the future? This is probably the most sensitive one. Uh, and, and listen, I stand to be corrected on this one. But I'm going to speak, I'm going to speak for us now, and, and based on everything that I understand in the Bible, here's, here's what I think, well, let me, here's what you definitely can hang your hat on. I'm, I'm very confident about this, and I'm going to read it word for word, because I am not confident about anything I might say if I don't read what God gave me here. So please don't think this less than genuine, but rather try to see it as something responsible on my part. To those who have been divorced in the past, who are not currently remarried, but who desire to be remarried in the future, to those I would say, be sure to speak honestly with your pastors about the history of your past relationships so that they can help you to discern from the scriptures the will of God in your particular situation. As a general principle, Jesus, we see, discourages marriage to another person while our original spouse is still living and we have an opportunity to be faithful to the covenant of marriage that we have made with that person. However, there are cases where reconciliation is either impossible or unsafe at the present time. And as you can see, here in Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, there is an exception clause which implies at the very least that the precise history of our relationships is to be taken into account before we can make blanket statements about every situation. Talk honestly, not just talk with your pastors, speak honestly with them so that they can help you. And when they help you, make sure they take you to places in the Bible that sound like this. I'm going to give you a list, and then I'm going to preach the gospel to you. I'm going to give you a list of passages from the Old and the New Testament that will help you to develop your own convictions about all of these things. Number one, Genesis, there are ten of them, by the way. Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. Now, if you can't write it quickly enough, don't worry about it. I have it, and we can find a way to get it to you. Number two, Deuteronomy chapter 2, or rather, Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. Malachi chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 12. Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. Luke chapter 16, verse 18. Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, all of it. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. And for those of you who know about Bible context and think I should have started in verse 21, just put 21 on your list. 
that list of scriptures will help you to, de to determine what it is you believe about all of these things. And, I, and I, I ask you to prayerfully consider the meaning of those things before you jump to hasty conclusions with friends, with pastors, all right, so that you can, you can make sure that you land in a, in a safe and helpful place. All right, so all of that to point us to Christ. Now, I said earlier that when the law of God comes to us, it comes in the context of grace. That is very true. When Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He is actually speaking about the way in which he helps us. Regardless of the particular sins of our past or our present that have disqualified us on the basis of our own merits from entering the kingdom of heaven, Jesus is saying, if you had nothing but the law and the prophets before you, you would have no chance at all. And I'm not taking them away from you. I have not come to abolish them. That is, in a sense, to remove them from you. I have come to fulfill them for you. You could, you could spend the rest of your morning and the rest of your life trying to figure out whether or not you have committed adultery and trying on the basis of that to justify yourself in God's sight. Here's a better approach. Jesus has never committed adultery. And Jesus, without question, has the righteousness that is able to make you righteous in God's sight through faith in him. You could try to figure out whether or not you've ever committed murder, the kind we discussed last week or the kind that everybody has in mind when we use that word. Or here's another approach. You could realize that Jesus has never committed murder. And that because of that, Jesus has the righteousness that must be imputed or given to us as a gift and by which and by which alone you and I can be considered righteous in God's sight. You could pick any one of the commandments or any rule that God puts in the Bible and you could try to convince yourself that you've kept it perfectly. You could be like the rich young ruler. All these I have kept since I was a boy. And Jesus will find something that you have not kept. And if you are determined to be considered good enough to enter heaven on your own merits, you will walk away sad just like he did. And you will be walking away from the one that is the answer to your problem. In Nathaniel Hawthorne's classic, The Scarlet Letter, Hester was made to wear a badge of, sh of shame, a letter that identified her as something that makes us ashamed when we go out in public. A scarlet letter. Look at Colossians chapter 2. And I want you to see what happens in Christ. In Colossians chapter 2, Down in verse 10, or 11 rather. In Christ you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. There's no reason to put off hands or eyes or any of that stuff. Here it is, right? The cutting you need has been done. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Verse 12. 
having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Keep going. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Everybody say all. Keep going. By canceling, here's how God did it, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Letters, words that stood against us and that, that pronounced things about us that made us feel unclean when we considered who we were in the light of those words. That God canceled the record of debt, every obligation that we thought we still owed to God and had to do ourselves, it's canceled. All this stuff that stood against us with its legal demands, this he, God, set aside nailing it to the cross. Now here's the thing. What was nailed to the cross? Christ. He became for us. He became for us. Sin. That which stood against us and opposed to us and would keep us from God forever, Christ became for us. He fulfilled the law by dying in our place. And in so doing, he, verse 15, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. It's not you to be put to open shame. And the, the, only, the only scarlet letter here in Christ is that record of debt and legal demands that stands against us that he pours his own blood over and covers. Thanks be to God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns his face away as wounds which mar not you, but the chosen one, bring many sons to glory. It is a sin to pick that scarlet letter back up when Christ has taken it from you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, by your Spirit, warn those who must be warned Encourage those who need to be encouraged. Comfort those who need to be comforted. Bless all by the hearing of your word. We ask us in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.